is that today marks one month since forces of the Russian Federation uh, invaded Ukraine. There has been a much longer conflict between the two countries, the annexation of Crimea and the ongoing conflict in Donbass, which has claimed about 14,000 lives. Uh, this invasion marks a profound escalation. Since then, events have moved incredibly quickly, uh, though perhaps not as quickly as Vladimir Putin would have hoped. The numbers we're talking about are unprecedented. That is a term that tends to get overused in the humanitarian space, but I think it really counts when we talk about uh, uh, this situation. In one month, over three and a half million people have fled Ukraine. Two million are internally displaced. These numbers will rise. 12 million people are expected to require humanitarian assistance in the next three months. That is approximately a third of the population of Ukraine. The war has already destroyed livelihoods and critical infrastructure, water, electricity. The WHO estimates that 34 healthcare facilities have been destroyed. And we know that the destruction of critical infrastructure like this, the destruction of livelihoods, tends to kill more people than the outright violence. Something to, to, to keep in mind. That's the first anniversary. In one month, Ukraine has developed into a humanitarian emergency of very significant proportions. But there's a second anniversary that I want to highlight here as well. This one is much older. This year marks the 160th anniversary of a publication of a very pivotal book in the field of humanitarian studies. That book is Memory of Solferino, written by Henri Dunant. Dunant was a Swiss businessman who happened upon the after effects of the Battle of Solferino between Austrian and French forces in northern Italy. As legend has it, Dunant was so horrified by the suffering he saw there, he immediately organized relief. And it was in his book, published in 1862, that he called for the establishment of the Geneva Conventions, or what became known as the Geneva Conventions, and the International Committee for the Red Cross. These are two fundamental foundations of the contemporary humanitarian system. So I think much like the discipline of international relations and how they highlight the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648 as a key pivotal moment for that discipline, founding the international state system, I think humanitarian studies can look at 1862 and the publication of Memory of Solferino as equally pivotal. So that's where I want to bring these two anniversaries together. Uh, Michael Barnett, a historian of humanitarianism, argues that Solferino was part of the humanitarian Big Bang, the expansion of our concern for distant suffering uh, that was driven by social, political, economic, and military transformations that occurred in the late 19th century. Now, what we're seeing take place in Ukraine is similar in a lot of respects. A changing, 
shape of conflict, a conflict that was very unexpected uh, only a couple of months ago. The use of new technologies, both military and civilian. A commodity shock to a highly globalized uh, economy and use of sanctions. New ways of dealing with mass displacement, new ways of doing human rights advocacy, and documenting abuse. So, what does this unfolding humanitarian emergency look like? What are its implications for humanitarianism more broadly? And to what extent might we see the invasion of Ukraine as a potentially transformative Solferino moment for the humanitarian system? This evening, uh, we'll focus on several different dimensions that are related to this. We'll start by focusing on a, a bird's eye view of the impact of the invasion uh, on the humanitarian system and how it's responded to this. Then we're going to shift into a focus on the delivery of humanitarian aid in conflict zones and questions relating to humanitarian space, the ability of agencies to get to and deliver uh, aid to people who need it. After that, we're going to examine one of the most prominent issues uh, to come out of the crisis, one of the most remarkable ones in my view, which has been the way that asylum seekers have been managed, particularly in the European Union. I'm sure many of you have, have, have noticed this as well. And then finally, we're going to focus on uh, uh, one particular instance of a vulnerable population that has been less able to leave. Now, it's an absolute privilege to be here at LSE because we can draw on this kind of breadth of experience, both from our staff and our students. Uh, and I'm delighted to have four panelists joining us to grapple with these issues. I've asked them to limit uh, their comments to 10 minutes or under. It goes without saying that each of them could go into much greater detail about each of these issues. Um, but ideally, we'll leave plenty of time for questions and uh, answers. So I'll introduce our panelists as we go along. Why don't we begin with uh, Sir Mark Lokar, currently a professor uh, in practice here at the LSE. Mark has been involved in humanitarianism and development for well over three decades. From 2011 to 2017, he was the permanent secretary of the UK Department for International Development. May it rest in peace. <laughs> After that, he served as the Undersecretary General for Humanitarian Affairs and Emergency Relief Coordinator for the United Nations up until 2021. I know that's a mouthful, uh, but Mark is very helpful in, uh, as he summarizes his position in his forthcoming book, who's effectively the relief chief of the UN. Um, so, Mark, I'll hand over to you to, to get us started. Ian, thank you so much. Hello, everybody. Nice to see you. Um, so, the 10-hour version of um, what I'm about to say in 10 minutes is in Relief Chief, um, my book, which, um, if you're bored in the next 10 minutes, please go to my Twitter account and pre-order your copy of <laughs> Relief Chief. Um, a lot of what is in there, although the word Ukraine doesn't appear, unfortunately is highly relevant. Uh, to Ukraine, because a lot of what, is, what we're seeing in Ukraine now are the things I and others have been dealing with in um, Syria in particular, but in other places over the last four years or so. And some of my predictions of what's to come reflect that experience, as well as my experience in dealing with the issues in eastern Ukraine um, 
as a result of the first incursion. So um, the, um, there's three sorts of people who I think it's worth focusing on to start with on the humanitarian implications of what's happening. The first is the, the refugees who've left the country. And I think you're going to talk a lot more about that. But it is worth making the point that this is a big, quick influx into the countries receiving them. Those countries are relatively capable compared to most countries receiving large numbers of refugees in coping in the short term. And they've displayed extraordinary generosity um, on a societal level, not just a governmental level, on a societal level. But I think a, a issue that's already growing is the economic burden that's being put on those countries, especially Poland, but other countries as well. And the rest of the world has not yet caught up with the need to respond to what will be a growing need of help for those countries better off as they are in dealing with this huge influx. The second group of people who I think it's worth um, paying attention to are people who've been internally displaced inside Ukraine. And the number there is, no one really knows how many it is, by the way, but your three and a half million number, uh, I think that was the number you quoted, is um, order of magnitude probably about right. It's probably maybe somewhat larger than that. One thing I more or less guarantee to you is it's going to get a lot bigger on most people's base case scenario for how this conflict will play out. Now, um, as a proportion of the population of Ukraine, this is still probably a bit less than a quarter of the population. So this is not yet at Syrian levels. In Syria, um, you know, a higher proportion of the, of the population of the country were either displaced or left completely. But this is, this is by normal standards for a large country, a large proportion of the population immediately affected by a conflict. And so um, at a time when the country is struggling to run its normal functions, to keep the economy going, and to provide basic services to people, to have a huge dislocation of population, mostly from east to west, is causing a, a really a massive strain on the social order and people's ability to rub along. In, in, again, it's generally being coped with, as these crises always are in the first instance, by generosity from one set of human beings to another set of human beings, often their friends or family, often though people they've never met or heard of before. And that generosity of the human spirit already is an important characteristic of this crisis in Ukraine. Now, the wider world is still working out how to provide financial support to Ukraine to cope with this massive economic societal disruption. And I, if I were you, I would be looking out for what the wider world does on that topic over the next month or so. The spring meetings of the World Bank and the IMF are going to be really important in terms of what needs to be a several orders of magnitude ratcheting up of economic and financial support to Ukraine, uh, in the absence of which there will be a much, much greater refugee exodus. So there's some self-interest at stake in the wider world helping Ukraine with the financial consequences of the dislocation, um, as well as um, what ought to be a humanitarian imperative. Now, the third group of people I want to talk about are people who are caught up in the conflict and the fighting. And um, that is the most difficult humanitarian set of issues to deal with, obviously. And it's difficult because what we're seeing is wholesale flagrant violation of the 
set of rules and norms and standards that Henri Dunant, more to his story you can read in the introduction to Relief Chief, Henri um, <laughs> Dunant um, set out 160 years ago. And unfortunately, that is something that doesn't surprise anybody who has been involved with these issues over the last five years, because what we're seeing in terms of the conduct of the hostilities um, in Ukraine is straight out of the Chechnya, Grozny, Syria playbook. The intent is to terrorize populations. That, that is what the aggressor is trying to do. And the purpose of terrorizing them is to reduce morale and resilience and to force people to submit or to flee. Now, for obvious reasons, that makes it extremely difficult to provide humanitarian assistance um, because the intent is also to prevent people getting humanitarian assistance. Now, um, I can tell you that today, my former colleagues from the UN Office of Coordination for Humanitarian Affairs are in Moscow trying to negotiate arrangements for what's called a deconfliction system or a notification system where the parties to a conflict are assisted in complying with their international humanitarian law obligations to protect civilians. And the idea is to create a system whereby civilian refugees are notified to the hostilities on the basis that the belligerents then prevent attacks on those locations. Systems like that can work very well. They've worked extremely well, for example, in the war in Yemen over the last 10 years. Um, and, um, but they don't always have to work well. That system in Syria, which my office used to run, uh, was established in 2014. By 2019, as I had to tell the Security Council that year, I'd come to the conclusion that the system wasn't working because the people who were supposed to be using the information to protect civilian facilities were in fact using it to target civilian facilities. So th there isn't a more difficult environment in which to provide humanitarian assistance to civilians caught up in the conflict than what we're seeing um, in Ukraine at the moment. And um, there are some things you can do and some things it's important to do. Um, and I've written a bit more about this on a, on a blog I posted on the Centre for Global Development website the other day. You can try to reinforce protected places, build underground hospitals and so on. You can um, create civilian defence um, arrangements of the sort that the White Helmets created in Syria. And you can, you can gather and collect and publicise and disseminate evidence of atrocities. It's still the case that people committing atrocities would rather that the evidence on them and the perpetrators of them and the footage wasn't collected because they fear that if there is evidence collected, the chance of being accountable grows. So it's a useful thing to do to collect all that evidence and maybe one day in the future there will be some accountability. But, but none of us should kid ourselves that this is other than a really extreme situation for the people caught up in the conflict and there are limits to however hard they try um, what the humanitarian organizations can do to um, help them trying to get as many people out as possible is probably the most important strategy and i want to say one last thing before i exceed my 10 minutes if i haven't already and that is um 
this, um, the, the humanitarian consequences of what's going on are going to ripple across the whole of the world. The um, director of the school, Minouche Shabik, and I were on BBC Radio 4 10 days ago describing some of the consequences on very poor countries. The spike in food prices, the disruption of grain markets, um, the huge increase is going to be in fertilizer prices, which will dramatically reduce food production already effective for this season, but dramatically reduced into the future. It may well be that if in the best case scenario, we're lucky in that the hostilities in Ukraine do calm down somewhat, um, I'm not certain they're going to, but were that to be uh, the case, there would still be a massive humanitarian set of consequences more widely around the world in countries, especially like Yemen and Afghanistan, which are facing mass starvation anyway, because of the ripple on effects that we've already um, seen from the Ukraine um, direct, uh, direct consequences of the, the, the crisis. And one of the reasons I mention that is because that set of issues, the wider world effects, is being widely ignored. And we need to find a way of getting policymakers focused on them as well if we don't want there to be horrible unintended consequences of and, and unattended to consequences of what's going on. Thanks so much. Uh, uh, thanks. Thanks, Mark. I think you, you raise a lot of really interesting points, and I really, I think this aspect of visibility is really interesting in terms of the way that social media is amplifying the visibility of, you know, I'm sure everyone's come across these uh, small videos on online news sites around incredible kind of acts of courage and bravery, taking down road signs, standing in front of tanks. Uh, as you say, I think these new technologies have a, have a really interesting implication in terms of documenting their uses. But I think the flip side of that is the invisibility of these water implications that we talked about, the impacts of rising food prices and so on. Yeah, are, are, are really interesting. Um, so let's move on to focus in on some of the things that Mark was bringing up around the challenges of delivering aid from the conflict zone. And for this, we'll move on to our very own uh, Stuart Gordon. Stuart is an associate professor uh, and program director of IDHE, which in a lot of ways undersells him. I think for people who are in IDHE or for former students of IDHE, such as myself, Stuart really is IDHE. <laughs> <laughs> and I think the success of the program over the past 10 years is really a testament to his exceptional uh, hard work. Before joining LSE, Stuart was a senior advisor to the UK government on Afghanistan. Um, they could have used your help, I think, a little while ago there. And prior to that, he was an officer in the British military. Stuart has not only researched and conducted fieldwork in a range of conflict or post-conflict situations, he's also had significant operational experience as well. And correct me if I'm wrong, Stuart, but you were the uh, humanitarian coordinator in Baghdad. Uh, I, was, uh, I, I ran the Humanitarian Operations Centre for the military, it was a, a, a UN coordinator. Stuart? Thank you very much. Um, 
I'm going to talk very briefly about humanitarian space. Many of you will have heard about the idea. It's a, it's a ubiquitous term, but the content is incredibly fluid. Uh, we know that it means a variety of things, a space in which independent, neutral, and impartial action can take place, agency space. We, we know that it also includes beneficiary space, the ability of beneficiaries to receive um, humanitarian uh, 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 commodities and services. But for the ICRC, it also means uh, compliance with, uh, with IHL, and there are other sociological definitions. It's a marketplace of ideas, etc. Most of this is rooted in uh, very constructivist ideas, the idea that it can be negotiated. It's a product of norms being uh, manufactured, created, promoted. Um, and I'm going to take a completely different position, a very structuralist position, to say that uh, humanitarian space depends entirely on the military choices available to the Russians at the moment. And to go back uh, over that, um, I think you need to look at plan A for the Russians, which was a lovely little plan, um, uh, very similar, I think, in many ways to the uh, American plan for the invasion of Iraq. Um, it, it would be three to four days of uh, military hostilities, light casualties, limited Ukrainian resistance, NATO and the European Union would fall apart, their sanctions would be riddled with self-interest and greed, um, and there would be a victory parade in Kiev with flags and bunting for uh, everybody. That didn't quite work out, really. Uh, they underestimated Ukrainian resistance. They overestimated their own military competence. And they showcased, frankly, um, profound military incompetence. Uh, their logistics uh, system broke down. There was a failure of strategic military leadership. There was, uh, uh, it exposed real challenges uh, with the morale and uh, training uh, of, of Russian troops. Um, the Western sanctions and uh, support to the Ukrainians uh, was incredible. The Ukrainian resistance itself was absolutely incredible. Um, one of the big surprises was the failure of the Russians to gain air superiority, and that meant that the Ukrainian Air Force is still operating today. Uh, it means that the Russians are unable to use battlefield air uh, in the way that they would, uh, they would want. The Ukrainians can move reinforcements, equipment around the place. Uh, in other words, uh, they have uh, uh, a lot more latitude uh, on the ground. The other problem is that the Russians have taken super high casualties. It depends who you talk to. Uh, the Ukrainians are talking bound to exaggerate, but we're talking probably in the region of 15,000, uh, according to uh, the sources that I, I tend to talk to. And the Russian army at the moment is paralyzed with some people uh, applauding the pushback of uh, the Russian front lines, which uh, it's easy to exaggerate, but there is some of that around tactically important uh, areas. But the Russian army is broken uh, and you can't simply change tactics. The Russians are going to go through a period of, of reorganization, consolidation, and they've moved on to plan B. And Plan B is what they normally do, as Mark described. Uh, it's what we've seen in Grozny, it's what we've seen in Aleppo. Um, so it's a, a, back, uh, a back to um, uh, an attritional uh, uh, situation. Now, some people are talking about there being um, a stalemate. There isn't a stalemate. Um, what there is at, at the moment is a strategic pause 
as both sides begin to readjust. The Russians um, are bringing in new forces, including uh, Wagner, uh, Chechens, and, um, uh, and militia organizations, plus they're bringing in some of their, their top-rated troops from around Moscow. Um, the Ukrainians are pumped up on uh, a brand new package of arms, including some new technologies, um, the switchblade uh, UAVs from the United States. And this is really, really scary. Because the problem is that the Russians can't escalate to victory, and nor can the Ukrainians um, take back strategically the kind of territory that they want. But we do know that um, politically Putin is backed into a corner and therefore he's having to use techniques on the battlefield that signal to the West that intervention and support is extremely dangerous for them. And they have to uh, use tactics on the battlefield which demoralize uh, the, um, the Ukrainian population. And the result of this is that the war has become uh, a war of signaling via abuse. And humanitarian space, agency space, beneficiary space, compliance with IHL is contracting rapidly as a result of this switch to Plan B. We're seeing um, thermobaric weapons, um, father of all bombs, uh, slightly different from the American mother of all bombs. Um, we're seeing um, hypersonic weapons. Now, these are bizarre weapons. They obviously go very, very fast, but they're usually used on high-value targets in um, very densely protected uh, uh, air defense environments, so command and control, and they're being thrown away. These are very expensive weapon systems. So what most analysts feel is happening is there's an extremely clumsy form of military strategic signaling going on, that these weapons are being, these um, rare weapons in the Russian arm, uh, arsenal are being squandered on um, non-valuable targets as a way of saying to the West, we are contemplating forms of escalation and we can hit targets with missiles launched from Russia that you can't stop. Now, the reality is most Western analysts are looking at this saying, you've only got six platforms to deliver these. You've got half a dozen of these missiles. This is, this is an incompetent form of signaling. And I think that's the, uh, the big problem that we have that the uh, Russians are talking in terms of, um, or giving hints that chemical and biological weapons uh, might be used. At the same time, they're using extremely heavy artillery systems against essentially civilian targets. So we're seeing a complete instrumentalization of, uh, uh, of abuse, contraction of humanitarian space in order to prosecute two campaigns. One against Western intervention to ensuring uh, that the Ukrainians uh, give up very quickly. Um, we're also seeing the Russians using humanitarian language, uh, the idea of uh, responsibility to protect. The entire Russian intervention was drawn in, uh, with parallels to Kosovo and to Libya. Um, we're also seeing the idea of humanitarian uh, ceasefires and humanitarian corridors, again, um, in ways that are connected to the, uh, the political strategy and the political signaling. There are also real worries about the kind of signaling that is going on. For example, the mobilization of, uh, uh, of cyber. 
is really, really frightening. We've seen the Ukrainians mobilize 300,000 IT specialists across the world who are engaged in denial of service attacks on, on Russia, but some of the brighter ones are also engaged in trying to bring down systems as well. The Russians have started to mobilize. We've seen attacks, we've seen something like a hundredfold increase in cyber attacks in the city of London since the war started. Now, what we do know is that the Russians have got a huge pool of uh, IT specialists. They're linked to the criminal underworld. And the boundaries between state and civil society in Russia, uh, uh, sorry, state and criminal society in Russia, it, with regard to cyber attacks, are very, very porous. Now, what happens when cyber attacks from either side, uh, uncontrolled, untargeted, uh, 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 poorly linked to strategic uh, signal. What happens when denial of service leads to deaths, um, that there are Russian deaths or that there are um, Western deaths as a result of these attacks? So the problem that we've got is we have uh, military signaling by Putin, which is clumsy, based around uh, the contraction of humanitarian space. We find, uh, we've got Putin with his back against the wall, increasingly reliant on tactics which, which are, are, are utterly destructive of norms. And we have uh, a cyber strategy on both sides that where the signaling, the thresholds, the trigger points are not defined effectively. And yet uh, the world watches on. And I think that's enough for me because I've cheered everybody up. <laughs> Um, I want to say thank you, Stuart. I mean, that was, you're right, that was a grim uh, implication, but I think, um, I think there's, from what you've talked about, there's a lot of really fascinating implications, and I think the big elephant in the room for me is how quickly we've been reminded about the threat of nuclear weapons, and I think this, this uh, sense that the Russian nuclear deterrent is on high alert the first time since that's happened since the Cuban Missile Crisis is a sobering Also, I really think this idea of non-state groups working in, in a humanitarian, working in this space, um, really interesting and has really interesting implications for the idea of humanitarian space. And I was just reading um, the other day about the role of private actors, and in particular, uh, Iron Man himself, Elon Musk, who was involved and supplied uh, uh, Ukraine with his Starlink system of connecting to the internet. I think it's, there's a lot of really interesting implications for how really hard-fought humanitarian principles, like do no harm, um, are, are used in influencing the kind of actors in this space. Um, okay, why don't we move on to one of the most, I think one of the most remarkable and one of the most visible aspects of this crisis, um, which is not only the sheer scale of the displacement, but the policy responses uh, to it. And I think Mark touched upon this as well. It has been uh, uh, particularly in contrast to previous crises, both temporally and even geographically. When we look at the Polish-Belarusian uh, border and how pushbacks of migrants are still happening there, this is a really uh, remarkable development in all sorts of aspects. Um, so for this, we'll move to uh, Aiko uh, Tielemann. 
Feiko is an associate professor in the uh, government department and the European Institute. Uh, his focus is on EU and comparative uh, European policymaking, but he's uh, particularly focused on the role of burden sharing, or I think what is more appropriately called responsibility sharing in the context of the EU itself. Uh, so Eiko, we'll hand over to you. Thank you very much, Ian. Um, thanks uh, to you for, for coming. I'm delighted to join the panel. Um, I feel uh, honored as a non-international development uh, <laughs> colleague to be, to, to be here. And um, as, um, as Ian said, um, I, I work particularly on issues of, around international cooperation when it comes to refugee protection, and particularly in the EU context. And um, I've uh, done some work um, with both the European Parliament and the European Commission over the years. Um, a few years ago, we, we wrote a report um, on the future of a European-wide responsibility sharing system. Um, then we were still thinking about the Balkans, right? The Arab Spring in the early 2000. Um, obviously, then then Syria, right? Um, um, but some of the issues that we try to highlight in that report, I think, are still relevant today and are maybe deserve some new reflection in the light of um, some of the innovations that we've seen in in recent weeks um, with regard to Europe's response to the um, Ukrainian. And display the crisis of displacement. Um, so, one of the one of the arguments that we made in the in the report um, to the European Parliament um, was that we do usually in refugee crisis hear a lot about absolute numbers, and we we already talked a little bit about this, right? And, um, and you will have heard that, of course, uh, in terms of displacement in Europe, right? This is really the second largest uh, crisis of displacement since the Second World War. And, um, and we've heard how, how some countries in particular have been affected by this. Poland, uh, right? Uh, probably unprecedented numbers uh, of arrivals in terms of it, it, its history. Um, but what we hear a bit less about is kind of these broader distributional um, implications of these of these flows, right? So we, we get these snapshots, right? Um, like in Syria, Syria, we heard a lot how Germany took in over a million refugees, and we heard it repeatedly, right? Um, and now we hear a lot about the Polish situation and the absolute numbers there, right? But we hear a lot less, for example, um, or we heard less in 2015, but Austria actually relative to its size, taking in a lot more refugees than Germany, right? Um, similarly, Sweden. Um, and we hear a lot less, perhaps, nowadays about Moldova, which, um, relative to its size, um, is facing incredible challenges, right? Um, 12 to 15% of its population are made up of, um, um, of, of Ukrainians at, at the moment, right? So that compares to maybe 1%. Um, of the population made up of Syrians at the height of the Syrian conflict in Germany um, and, and across um, the, um, the EU as a, as a whole. So, um, so what I want to, uh, I guess, uh, develop as an argument here that we should take the distributional consequences of migration flows um, into uh, more serious considerations. And I, I would say this is really for two reasons, right? One is I guess the reason of capacity, right? So if small countries um, 
attract disproportionate numbers, they might be incapable of sufficiently providing effective protection to them. The other reason is um, what I would call, I guess, issues around not capacity, but fairness. If there's a perception that the distribution of migration and asylum and refugee inflows is unfair, that will affect not the capacity, but the willingness of states to contribute to refugee protection efforts. And, um, and I think we have seen this time and again in, the, in Europe's response to various refugee crises. And I think this is also where the EU can arguably play a very important um, role. Um, so if it is true that the highly unequal and uh, unfair distribution of migration inflows, and especially refugee inflows, is, is problematic, then I guess the question from a public policy point of view arises, what can we do from a public policy perspective to make the distribution fair? How can we think about um, allocation of responsibility that is, I guess, taking into account the varied capacity of host states and hence, I guess, maximize um, protection willingness across Europe as a, as a whole? And so um, keeping that, I guess, question in mind, I want to talk you through, I guess, three key policy options that um, Europe has. Um, and, and these are, I guess, alternatives. They can sometimes be uh, maybe combined in, in interesting uh, ways. Um, and those three, um, for me, are one, um, allocating responsibility to countries that have a meaningful link to the refugees, right? Um, that's one. Quota-based kind of allocation mechanisms where you basically say, all right, we look at capacity and allocate quotas um, um, to basically increase fairness um, in terms of protection efforts. And the third um, possibility is what I call the free choice approach, where you basically leave it up to asylum seekers to choose where they want to um, benefit uh, from protection. Let me talk you through some of the pros and cons of those three alternative uh, models. So first of all, there's the, I guess, meaningful link idea, right? So in a way, we've seen this here in the UK context, right? The government jumping on this idea that only those, or preferably only those with family ties, right, can come uh, to, 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 to Britain, right? And so this is, I guess, one idea of this meaningful link. But in the EU context, we've operated a similar kind of idea for many years with the so-called Dublin system, um, where basically the country of first entry in which asylum seekers arrive is deemed to be the one that has the most meaningful link to those arriving and is therefore deemed responsible. Right? And of course, in the Syrian context, what that meant was that 66%, two-thirds of all asylum seekers coming from Syria into the European Union came through Greece, right, because of geographic reasons. And hence, in principle, Greece was deemed to be responsible for two-thirds of all Syrians arriving in, in Europe, which clearly um, was, was not a very good idea. Um, so obviously, there, so there are some, 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 I guess, intuitive, I guess, um, attractions of dealing with um, this meaningful link idea. And certainly, nobody says, that obviously bringing families together is not a good idea. It is. 
but whether it is an effective humanitarian response in a crisis, right? I think that is a question that one, one should ask. And certainly, and we've seen this now, of course, right? Um, if we base our discussions on this meaningful link idea, we're not going to have fair responsibility sharing, right? Um, and um, we know that some countries, like the uh, UK at the moment, will do less than, than other countries. And we know that external border countries, because of their geography, will always tend to be over, overburdened. Um, so um, that brings me to my second, um, um, I guess, policy option, and that is that of capacity-based quotas, right? So the idea that, yes, ultimately, um, obviously, people will arrive in external border countries, but then we can basically come up with a system where, where we look at the capacity of different states and relocate individuals accordingly, right? Um, that certainly will create a fairer distribution of responsibilities, um, for, for, for sure. It will prevent, arguably, overburdening of individual um, countries. Um, but of course, on the con side, it's politically difficult to do, right? Um, so states who have not had, obviously, the experience of large-scale inflows, they are particularly reluctant, right, to go down the route of binding capacity-based quotas. And we saw that in the context of the Syrian crisis, and especially Eastern European countries were not really happy with um, ideas of um, uh, capacity-based, quota-based um, responsibility uh, sharing. So there are issues of state sovereignty that are difficult. There are also issues of, I guess, migrant agency that are problematic. Because obviously, in any kind of relocation context, right, you're basically telling people, well, uh, for managerial reasons, we would rather like you to be there rather than over here, right? So, um, and of course, there are also issues around safeguards, right? Um, how do we make sure that once we relocate individuals, sufficient safeguards are in place in the destination um, country? That might be less problematic in the EU context, but still not without its problems. That brings me to, I guess, the Ukrainian innovation, as some people might call it, right? Um, the free choice model, right? So for the first time, the European Union has initiated this so-called European Temporary Protection Directive, right? Um, it was already created in, in 2001, has never been, been used since then. Um, but basically here, now the EU has activated this, this instrument, which allows individuals to basically choose Ukrainians should choose where they want to seek protection, right? And, and where they want to access a set of, of rights and supports that are basically harmonized across all member states of the, of, of the European uh, Union. And so, so from, from, from that perspective, right, um, there are a number of advantages from this, um, from this temporary protection idea, right? It's, it's quite easy to, to, to manage, right? It's, it's relatively cheap. You don't have to bureaucratically decide on, on quotas and relocations and, and, and so on. Right? Um, and it respects a migrant agency, right? which was one of the big advantages that I mentioned, disadvantages of the quota-based approach. The one big drawback, though, with free choice is, again, distribution. right? When you leave it up to individuals to decide where to go, you're not going to achieve, obviously, necessarily a very fair distribution of, of, of responsibilities, right? And what it also means is it invites the possibility of 
potential host countries to play games, to either, I guess, encourage people who are already on their territory to leave to other countries in Europe, or for other countries to potentially try ways out to deter individuals from choosing them as their destination. Right? So it invites, I guess, dynamics of regulatory competition. And, um, and it's not so easy to foresee how you would get um, around that. So um, I'm gonna wrap it up here. Um, <coughs> what, what, I, what I would argue is that these distributional issues um, are likely to become a bigger concern for Europe as a whole um, over the next few months. At the moment, obviously, there's a huge amount, and we talked about it, surprising amount, right, of protection willingness, a lot of goodwill in a lot of countries, right, maybe unique, uh, unprecedented was the word, right, that uh, uh, was, was used. But how will that play out in six months, in 12 months time, right? Um, I think that's when these distributional issues will again come to the fore. And I would argue that unless we find solutions to these distributional issues, to these accusations that the distribution is unfair and therefore countries might step back and say, well, actually, we want others to do more rather than us doing more. Um, then I think we are running into big problems, both diplomatically in terms of relations between the EU member states, but also in terms of our ability to offer effective protection to refugees in Europe. Uh, wonderful. Thank you, Eiko. I think um... I'm really glad you spoke about the, the temporary uh, protection directive. My understanding is this has been around for over 20 years, and it's been passed unanimously just in the past month. And I guess I, I think it's a really fascinating question, this idea of whether this is going to set a precedent for future crises, or whether this is going to remain an exceptional kind of event. And I think you raised uh, attention to this idea of let's have a look at what six months from now what's going on in terms of these, these questions. Right, so we, we, you know, Eichel's been talking about the impact of the displacement crisis and how it's been managed at the EU level. Um, but as with many conflicts, not everyone is able to leave the country in the same way. Um, there are, you know, this, this crisis, like many crises, is notable in terms of the so particular social identities that are affected in different ways. Uh, and I think we can see that reflected in the kinds of people who are leaving, the kinds of people who are staying. And I think in this respect, we're really fortunate to have Anna Laundry with us. Um, Anna is a disability justice advocate and an MSc student uh, on the IDHE program and my personal mentee, I must say. <laughs> um, and up until a month ago, Anna, you and I were talking about the usual student ephemera, like exams and coursework and readings and so on. In the last month, Anna has pivoted almost uh, entirely to focus on helping coordinate the evacuation of people with disabilities from Ukraine as a crisis focal point at the Partnership for Inclusive Disaster Strategies. And she's written uh, quite a powerful blog on the international development uh, blog that I encourage everyone to have a look at um, that lays out some of the issues that she's dealing with in, in greater detail. So, uh, Anna, I'll hand over to you. Yeah, thank you. 
thank you guys for coming. I see a lot of classmates. <laughs> um, so I have been working at the partnership for the past month on this, uh, which means I've been skipping a lot of my IDHE classes. Uh, but I keep, oh, hey, I have permission. <laughs> the professors. Um, and I've been talking to kind of Sarah and Ian about the things that I've learned in the IDHG classes that have really helped me, particularly our class on the UN cluster system, which I presented to today on the gaps um, in the coordination, specifically with respect to people with disabilities. Um, and so I want to start by talking about the scale of this and reinforcing the idea that it's not a niche issue. The Ukrainian Statistics Services um, believes that about 2.7 million Ukrainians have some sort of disability, and experts agree that that number is probably much higher. Uh, we know that most countries between 15 and 20 percent of their population are disabled. So we're talking about a huge demographic um, and needs that really aren't considered in a lot of the humanitarian response uh, across the board. Um, and the way I kind of got started working on this was I saw from this organization of people with disabilities in Ukraine called Fight for Right, uh, a tweet from their account saying, look, we're in Ukraine, the invasion started yesterday, and we need to get our community out. You know, there are some people <coughs> who want to stay and are going to try and stay as they can, but very quickly areas in Eastern Ukraine were becoming unsustainable. Uh, for a lot of people with complex needs. And so I saw that tweet and I had worked a bit with the partnership as a consultant on various issues like the US pandemic response uh, with respect to disability rights. And so I immediately connected these two, a partnership and fight for right and said, okay, let's see what we can do here to help. Even though we in the past at the partnership only responded to natural disasters um, and to the pandemic. Um, we kind of saw our initial role as, well, let's get the people involved whose job it is to do this, the who's who of the humanitarian system. We know people at Red Cross. We know people at Save the Children. We have a ton of contacts in the UN. Um, what we need to do is point them to fight for right, to the disabled people, and say, go, go do it. And very quickly, about 48 hours in, we had made all these connections. We had spoken to various people at the very top of various Red Crosses. Um, we were in UN protection cluster meetings. And it was just kind of radio silence. And that is still really shocking uh, and disillusioning to me um, in terms of this gap. And what we found are kind of two main responses to our asks. Um, one, we're not doing evacuations. Our organization is finding the people who have moved and sheltering them and clothing them and feeding them, which is so important, of course, in any humanitarian response. But it leaves behind the people who can't move. Um, and I think there's this preoccupation in the humanitarian space with movement as a proxy for vulnerability. And of course, people who have moved from their homes are incredibly vulnerable. But what about the people who can't move? Uh, you're, you're really forgetting about, about those people. Um, so the first response we got was, no, we're not doing evacuations. The second was, we are doing evacuations. We do not have the capacity to evacuate personnel 
with those needs, uh, which was to say disabled people. Um, which again, I, to reiterate, it's still unbelievable to me. Um, I keep making jokes like, what does Red Cross think wheelchair users were invented when Ukraine got invaded? Like they don't have wheelchair accessible vans and buses. Um, and I think it's, a, it's very difficult for me to say where these problems come from. Um, because, you know, I haven't been in the humanitarian space for the whole of its institutionalization and development. But there seems to be a, a, a lack of expertise on disability, on what it looks like, on how common it is, on how you handle it, you know, the kind of vehicles you need, the kind of medical care that people are gonna need in a refugee camp, the fact that in shelters, you have to have an accessible toilet if you want disabled people to be able to live there. It's just a basic lack of awareness. Um, and then additionally, this idea that in an emergency, these things are too extra to provide, um, which again, I think is really, really wrong. I mean, in emergencies, everyone's triaging. Everyone's making tough choices. Um, when evacuating our cases, I've had to make, make tough choices about who goes uh, when we only have one vehicle or something like that. But we are two organizations <coughs> not built for this who are doing it. We've evacuated thus far 450 some odd people. Um, and I just can't help but imagine how much we could be evacuating if Red Cross was helping us. You know, for, I keep using Red Cross, sorry. Um, they're not the only bad guys. But <laughs> I, there have been a lot of kind of reluctance to join with us or let us in to the existing system uh, across a lot of contexts. There's a lot of gatekeeping, I think, which is difficult, and a lot of reluctance when we say, we see a gap and we wanna help you fill it and fix it. We don't wanna create a parallel <coughs> system. We don't wanna duplicate. These things are so important to avoid. Um, and unfortunately, there's not, there hasn't been thus far um, as much welcoming of our expertise, of our um, explanation of the gaps as we would like to see. Um, and I think, so to kind of give you a more clear idea of the gaps, they start at someone's house when they want to leave and they can't get to, you know, the train station or the bus station where these evacuation points are that are going to the border. Um, and so we often have to source that transportation from grassroots organizations. We're borrowing wheelchair accessible vans from people in Italy and Israel, Poland. Um, and then when we get to the border points, say you kind of do that impossible lift and you get someone to the border points, we're having a lot of issues with border guards not allowing people out if they're men with disabilities, uh, even if they have the relevant military exemptions. Um, Additionally, if they care for someone who has a disability, they're not being let out. And then this all starts out, starts again with the logistical difficulties on the other side of the border. Where are these people going to go and how are they going to get there? Um, so really the logistics are tough, the gaps are big. 
And I think it's also worth thinking about the ways in which we often don't think about how war itself and humanitarian crises themselves not only hit disabled people often the hardest, but they themselves produce disability. You know, the main weapon of war is killing and disabling. And yet we don't have this lens. And it's so strange. Uh, in Ukraine in particular, we've really seen the targeting by Russians of hospitals, of care centers, of these different long-term institutions. Um, and so I think we've, and to give a, one positive thing that we've seen happen, there's been more media coverage of this than ever before. Uh, our work at Fight for Right has been featured in the New York Times, in the Washington Post, on national news everywhere from South Africa to Canada to here in the UK. Um, so I think we're being able to make this more visible. And that's really encouraging. I think there's still a lot to be done, though, with institutionalizing these things. Because again, we knew all these gaps existed in the humanitarian space. We knew the statistics on disability in Ukraine and everywhere. And kind of, there have been a lot of good analyses of the, the issues present in the humanitarian system with respect to a lot of different identities that isn't yet tra translating to practice. Um, so yeah, I think I'll leave it there, but we are continuing to work on this stuff. We have right now 1,500 or so people on our caseload, which is a lot. We're two very small teams. Um, oh, and, and one thing I really do want to mention in, in closing is most of the help we've gotten has been from within the disability community, which I think is really cool. Uh, it's kind of this dual lovely thing to see and really disappointing thing to see, because it's like the most impacted people, the most marginalized people are the only ones stepping up to the plate. And at the same time, it's a really amazing show of community and solidarity. So, that's been a, a really interesting thing to see. And um, I'm interested to see how it kind of develops and how we can institutionalize this for future emergencies. Thank you, Anna. And I think you know, the, what you're talking about, I think, is, is extremely important. This, as you make clear, this is not an insignificant issue, both in terms of scope, but also in terms of principles. And I think in a lot of ways, what you're talking about is a ringing indictment of the humanitarian system in some ways, a system that's supposedly rooted on the principles of humanity, impartiality, human rights related to non-discrimination, as you're you're pointing out here, there are, are, are some serious uh, gaps between our expectations and our actual experience. In this case. Thank you, um, Anna, and uh, thanks to the, the, the panelists for a, a really interesting um, 
discussion is any insightful discussion as well. Thanks for people who ask questions. Thanks for you.